1: It takes strength and courage to turn inwards and look at your distress and suffering. It also takes dedication and wisdom to take action to alleviate the suffering. Chronic pain is a huge problem. It is estimated that between one-third and one-half of the adult population in the UK live with pain. In turn, many people struggle to manage their pain. They report that it affects nearly every aspect of their lives and that they feel held captive by it. Furthermore, the emotional impact of pain has been increasingly recognized, and it is recommended that treatments for chronic pain no longer rely on medication alone. However, it is difficult to find relatable, easy to understand information on the non medical aspects of pain management. Dr. Nicola Sherlock has a holistic view of pain. She looks at a different aspect of pain management, from the benefits of mindfulness meditation to overcoming a fear of exercise. The strategies for improving sleep. Valerie Atellis interviews Dr. Nicola Sherlock, the author of *Master Your Chronic Pain: A Practical Guide*. Dr. Nicola Sherlock is a consultant clinical psychologist. She obtained her master's degree in health psychology in 1996 and completed her doctorate training in clinical psychology in 2000. She has a long-standing interest in the impact of physical health problems on psychological well-being and has dedicated most of her professional life to working with people who are experiencing physical health problems and emotional distress. She wrote her self-help book, Master Your Chronic Pain, a practical guide to empower people who live with chronic pain. Her book adopts a holistic view of pain with each chapter covering a different aspect of pain management. The emotional impact of pain is discussed and practical tips for managing stress, worry and low moods are given. This book uses principles from acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, which has been established as a highly effective therapeutic approach in the management of chronic pain. Meet Dr. Nicola at Beniankierney.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Nicola Sherlock.
0: In your own words, who is Dr. Nicola Sherlock? Nicola Sherlock
1: is
2: a consultant clinical psychologist um, who has worked in clinical health for over 20 years. Um, I've worked um, primarily with people who live with long-term pain. I'm Irish. um, I practice in the UK. I live in the United Kingdom. I'm also a mom of three boys, which keep me very busy. So that's... That's kind of me in a
0: nutshell. (laughs) I can imagine about being busy, being a mother and busy. So my first official question is the idea of being healthy. So what is to be a healthy human being from your perspective, Nicola?
2: From my perspective, I think health is around physical health, but also psychological well-being and probably spiritual well-being as well so we know that physical and psychological health are very much connected when our psychological health is poor and um, that can impact very much on our physical health and vice versa And I suppose as a psychologist, I like to think about psychological health being on a continuum. So just like our physical health, um, at times in our lives, our psychological health might be maybe poorer than at other times. Um, So it's nearly like we move up and down a continuum of health. And I suppose I'm really passionate about helping people maintain good mental health or psychological health um, and and I suppose having strategies that they can use when life throws curveballs at all of us as it does, some things that they can use to help manage that.
0: True, so true. Yeah, life is always moving, right? Presenting us with challenges, so true. Which makes, to me, it's part of the human experience, isn't it? Um, That's it, absolutely.
2: And I think sometimes, especially now with the advent of social media, sometimes when we look at other people's lives, we can think they have the perfect life. But the reality is for everybody, we all experience ups and downs, both in terms of, I suppose, our physical health, but also our
0: psychological well-being as well. So true. Thank you so much for saying that. (laughs) You mentioned spiritual well-being. What does it look like, Nicola? What is that for you, from your perspective? What is to be spiritually well?
2: Well, from my own perspective, I think it's about um, really being in touch with my values. And I talk about values quite a bit in my book. Um, Being in touch with values, what's really important to me, and then living a life of purpose where I live out those values, where I engage in behaviours, hopefully on a daily basis, that move me towards my values and the things that really drive me and that are really important to me. And I guess that's my sense of... You know, spiritual well-being as well is, is about living a, living a good
0: life according to your values. And I wonder how values are constructed. How do we acquire them? I think they're culturally constructed to to some
2: extent. I think sometimes people can feel under pressure to have certain values depending on the culture in which they live or the culture in which they were born into. Um, And I guess as a psychologist, I would have to say that our formative years and our upbringing very much inform a lot of our values as well and then I suppose our experiences as adults. Um, But I think it's important to recognize that there are no right, in inverted commas, values or wrong. Um, um, You know, your values could be very different to mine, but that's that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're a better person or a worse person. Our values are about who we are and what's important to us. And I think our challenge as humans is to always try and move towards them as we move through life.
0: Yes, wow, that's an interesting topic to tap in because a lot of times I imagine experiencing this reality life without belief systems. Just like being able to see the big picture that I am in the human body and this is already fulfillment. This is a miracle to be here. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So I try to always keep that in mind. I don't call it a value though, or not even a belief system. It's just almost like this ultimate fact that we are here and this is what The only thing that there is, the only thing Mm -hmm. that exists really, and why not be grateful for it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, do you want to make a comment about that? This idea of living from this big picture, and if this is a value, sometimes I think it is, but I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, I, I, I guess I think it is about it is about, you know, being mindful that really all we have is the now um and the and the present moment and it is about it is about despite what maybe challenges we're facing, like living with chronic pain or, or other health challenges or other challenges maybe in our environment, it is about living that life in in a mindful way and being aware that we're here and and we I suppose that we all have nearly that we're entitled to live a good life um, and that it's good to Mm. live a good life and it's about putting in place the things that will allow us to do that
0: as much as we possibly can. So another question, the warm-up questions I have for you, is about self-compassion. This is also a section in your book. So your book, the introduction, has already that part of it. But you wrote the book, Master Your Chronic Pain, A Practical Guide. So talk to me for a moment about self-compassion, Nicola. I talk and I write a lot about self-love. And Mm -hmm. that message sometimes gets a little bit, um, let's say miscommunicated in some people they think of self-love as being selfish. So talk to me about self-compassion if this is the same thing as self-love or something different?
2: I think I think it's essentially the same thing, and I completely get where you're coming from in in, in when you say that self-love gets a bit of a bad rap. You know, that that people say that maybe it's selfish. And then often when I talk Uh about self-compassion with my patients, often they see that maybe as a weakness, Mm -hmm. that if I'm self-compassionate, that means I'm wallowing and I'm not pushing things forward. But I think we have to look at the different components of compassion. So compassion is essentially facing into suffering, but also having a responsibility to do something about it and what I often ask my patients to do is to think about some people that they know either in their personal life or people have read about or people in history who they would regard as being passionate or compassionate and then to think about and to consider are they weak or were they selfish and invariably people will say absolutely not Um, and I think that's a really nice way to highlight about the components of compassion um, and that it's not about, um, you know, selfishness or weakness or wallowing in self-pity um, and that it's an essential part of life. And there's a lot been a lot of psychological work um, carried out in compa- on compassion, both for, for self and for others. And we know that people who can show themselves compassion, that they're much happier um, and their psychological well-being is much higher than people who really struggle with it. So I think it's an essential part of
0: life. In your book, you said something interesting. There's a phrase where you say, it is important to remember that you did not choose to live a life in pain and Mm -hmm. that you are doing the best you can. Mm -hmm. This caught my attention because the idea of choice, I don't believe in choice. I believe that life is happening the way it should happen, that we are exactly where you're supposed Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. another Very challenging message to communicate. So, talk to me for a moment about this phrase you wrote. I love that, (laughs) of course.
2: Yeah, I I think it kind of it kind of comes from what we talked about a moment ago in terms of this compassion and and self compassion. And what I find is that the people I've worked with in pain are very very lacking in compassion, not towards other people. They're highly compassionate towards other people, but very much lacking in self compassion. Um, and in some ways, they feel that you know they feel. That they're responsible for their pain, that they have caused it, that they have caused this to happen to them, that they're letting people down. There can often be intense feelings of guilt and um, that they're maybe not able to fulfill valued roles, maybe as a parent or a grandparent or a friend or a daughter. So I think that's where that comes from, that, you know, this has happened to them, but they but there is no need to be self-critical and to feel guilt as a result of what life ha- or what, what, has ha- what has happened in
0: their life, another warm- up question I have for you is about the the purpose of life. If life had one purpose, one purpose only, what would that be from your perspective? From my
2: perspective, again, I'm kind of drawn back to values. Um, and, and this concept that's, that, that we talk about in acceptance or, and commitment therapy or ACT and it's about living a life that is meaningful for you and that where the things that are really important to you be it maybe compassion to other people to be a caring person, to be adventurous whatever it is that the, the purpose of life is to live that out as much as you pass, possibly can even with all the maybe obstacles that are sometimes in a way and so when I think about that in terms of the people I work with who've pain, I'm I'm thinking of one lady recently that I worked with who was um, a work a nurse working in a cancer ward and that was really really important to her and she lived out her value of caring for others and that was really important to her and then because of her pain she was no longer able to do that and she had to give up her work and then her challenge is to find some other way of expressing that caring. And I think that's her purpose. That that's what she regards as her purpose. And her challenge then was to find another way of doing that. And thankfully, she did find it, even uh, though know, she wasn't able to do it in her work. So I I think that's that's that's. I think everyone's purpose is individual, and then I think the challenge is to find a way to live that out, um, in life.
0: So let me ask you some open questions about healing. What is healing to you, and what are some of the obstacles? to healing?
2: I suppose when you ask me um, about healing, I think the word acceptance came into my mind. I think and and again I think we talked about self-compassion being a diff- difficult term sometimes to understand and I think acceptance is, is also a, diff- a difficult term for people but I think healing is about accepting the way things are and accepting maybe any difficult emotions that you feel rather than trying to constantly push them away by maybe pushing them away by eating or drinking or taking drugs or watching too much TV or spend too much time on social media. It's about acceptance of, of what is. I think, And, and I think that's, that's where healing comes in, that you accept the way your life is and that there's a contentment with that and, and, and that you regard it as still a good and a meaningful
0: and a fulfilled life. When I think about the topic of acceptance, I guess one of my biggest challenges that has been and it still is, wow, it's trusting to accept Mm -hmm. certain things like I don't know if that requires trust and I wonder who am I trusting myself what is the trust coming from that gives me that sense of inner peace when I kind of something in me goes back to that idea of trust so can you talk to me for a moment about that concept of trust and who are we trusting when it comes to acceptance
2: Again, I'm kind of nearly drawn back to that spiritual aspect of things, and that maybe that this is a moment ago. I think you said that something about us being where we're supposed to be in life, and I think maybe it's something around that that what what has happened or the journey we've been on through life and where we are right here, right now, is where we're supposed to be, and and maybe it's around accepting that that's that's where we are right now, and and that's that's okay. And that's where we're supposed to be. So it's nearly trusting that this, that what's happened to me um, or where I am right now is,
0: is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And then in a the way, even if we don't accept whatever it is, it's also accepting that, that we don't accept whatever it is that shows up. So that brings a sense of contentment and inner peace. So true. <laughs> Another question I have is about the signs of healing. Would you say acceptance is of what is and what is not happening a sign of healing
2: absolutely um i, I think that's that that is a sign of healing um and, and a sign of increased psychological well-being. And, and I know as psychologists, um, we often um, measure levels of acceptance even via questionnaires because we know that that's associated with better psychological well-being. So I think acceptance is is a big part of it. Um, I think as well, um, healing might be something around not being controlled by the voices in our head, um, by you know, the thoughts that we have that we're not good enough, that we're useless, that we can't do things. And I think if we can get to a point where we can hear those voices, but not listen to them or not really, really take them on board and let them direct our behavior and what we do, I think that can be a real sign of healing as well.
0: Yeah, that resonates true. Absolutely. And my last warm-up question is a fun one from my perspective. <laughs> what do you love most about being in a human body?
2: I suppose I love getting up every day and, and ha- I suppose a variety of life. And that how life changes. So if someone had have said to me four years ago that I would have written a book and be yeah. talking to you on Skype, I would have said, No way. That, yeah. that would never happen. <laughs> You've got the wrong person. And yeah. yet here I am here today. And I yeah. think I think that's that's what is exciting way that things can change and people can develop and and change all the time. And as a psychologist, that's what, what I'm all about is people's capacity to change. You know, that's what psychologists do and, and, and change and how life can be better and how life can flow and change in so many ways.
0: Yes. I love what you do, how you express yourself, your wisdom, everything. <laughs> I love everything about you, Nicola. It's truly beautiful. So, yeah, you mentioned this. Why did you choose to become a psychologist?
2: I guess I was always interested in people. Um, um, I love, I get bored very easily. and and in my job, I get to meet lots of different people, which isn't boring at all. I love hearing people's stories. Um, I love hearing the stories of their life. And I suppose it maybe sounds quite um, trite, but I wanted to help alleviate some suffering. Um, and that's one of my values is to try and alleviate suffering. And I suppose that's often a role of a psychologist. People come to see us or they are distressed and um, it. I find it so gratifying when people begin to feel better um, and, and are able to live a better life. So I, I think that's another big reason I became a psychologist.
0: Yes. Uh, thank you for being you. Thank you. So you wrote the book "Master Your Chronic Pain, a practical guide. Talk to me about the main inspiration and intention of writing your book.
2: Okay. It nearly comes back to my previous answer in that I've worked in a chronic pain clinic for over 20 years and I've witnessed a lot of suffering. Um, up close. um, I've witnessed physical suffering, but also a lot of emotional suffering. Um, In where I live, there's not a lot of um, pain psychologists, so it's quite a specialist um, profession. And I felt that I had all of this knowledge and all of this knowledge gained from working with so many people and sharing so many people's stories and journeys. And I thought, I just really felt compelled to put that in a book in an attempt to maybe alleviate some suffering of people that I would never meet, but who potentially would benefit from reading, um, I suppose, some of the things that I have learned and some of the things that I know through my research, through my training, but also from my
0: interactions with people who live with pain. Beautiful work. I had the opportunity to read your book and some of the sections I already mentioned earlier that caught my attention strongly, self-compassion, mindfulness, meditation. It is idea of acceptance, of course, but there are so many other points that I I have here. I guess a basic question that I want to ask you is about the cause of chronic pain. Is that something that has been already discovered in science
2: Yes and no. Um, so, uh, so I suppose what we well, chronic pain by definition is pain that has persisted from a, from beyond around three months or beyond the point at which we would have expected healing to have occurred. We're not entirely sure why why it persists, and for many people that I work with, it persists for years and decades. Um, it's probably to do with a sensitised nervous system, in that it's nearly like a car alarm that keeps going off even though no. Nobody's trying to break into the car. So the nervous system can become very sensitized um, and, um, and then pain is the output from that. Um, So it's a whole variety of reasons. But what we do, we know that there are biological factors that contribute to pain, but also psychological and social factors. For example, we know that if somebody is feeling very anxious or very stressed, that inevitably their pain will be much worse than maybe somebody who isn't so anxious or so stressed. So as clinicians we call it a biopsychosocial model which is an interaction of biological psychological and social factors
0: wow so it's not as simple as we wish no, it to be it is <laughs> yeah.
2: highly highly complex unfortunately yeah yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> to me it's, it kind of goes back to emotional pain or even spiritual pain which is kind of an, an interesting another interesting topic it's very complex to understand. We have to go really deep to understand. And sometimes we don't get to the root of the problem, which is kind of interesting too. And that goes back to acceptance. In your book, you say, I discovered how quickly and easily pain can come to define you. That caught my attention, that phrase. So talk to me for a moment about the ways we come to define ourselves and even pain plays a role in that. And also your own experience with chronic pain.
2: Yes. So I am at the beginning of my book. I talk a little bit about my own experience. So I developed really, really, um, really painful sciatica, um, leg pain um, after just um, probably within a couple of weeks of finishing the first draft of my book. Um, And that that piece that you mentioned in my book about how quickly pain can come to define you, I think very quickly my life became about pain, it became about the things that I couldn't do because of my pain when I interacted with people, be it family or friends, it was the first thing they asked about, so very quickly my working life had been taken away from me how I spent my time had been taken away from me, I love going to the gym, I could no longer go for the gym, I really struggled to go for a walk, I love being outdoors I love being in nature, I live in the country, I live right beside a forest park, I couldn't go anymore. So very, very quickly, my life became all about the pain. And that gave me a real insight, I suppose, into what people have told me um, since I started working in the pain clinic is that very, very quickly, it's nearly like you, you lose who you are, and, you, and your life has been taken over by, by
0: this pain. So it's focus kind of thing. So we focus our attention all in pain. I wonder if with emotional pain, it seems like we are able to disguise that better than with um, physical pain. Would you say, is the healing process for emotional pain the same or as complicated as for physical pain? Or they are the same when it comes to complexity? Or one is easier than the other? They're probably equally
2: complex, unfortunately. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. can be very um very difficult to heal um and often the root of a lot of emotional pain and maybe negative self-beliefs are rooted in formative years um and sometimes it's necessary to go back and to understand and really bring into consciousness those roots so that we can begin to heal
0: another message in your book that caught my attention or the passage you say, my experience has confirmed to me that there are things we can do to make our lives better and that is possible to live a life of meaning even if that life is lived in pain. That's a powerful statement that we can do that and it's so true, right Nicola, we can live a life with meaning, even though we're in the midst of pain, which is incredible to me. That shows how resilient we are as human beings.
2: Absolutely. And I think sometimes that when we're in pain, be it emotional, physical or both, we can forget how resilient we are and, and we can forget, I suppose, what our capabilities are and that and it's possible to live a good life.
0: I love how you keep saying that throughout the book. That's uh, a very empowering message, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that Mm -hmm. we can have a life of Mm -hmm. meaning regardless. Mm -hmm. That is Mm -hmm. so empowering. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful reminder for myself, even. It's so wonderful to hear that over and over again. Also, talk to me for a moment about no pain, no gain. That's Mm -hmm. something that we have heard for many, I mean, for centuries Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about your view, your ideas around that.
2: So I suppose um, you're right. I mean, I think I say in the book that in a gym I used to go to, it was written up in big writing on the wall: yeah, no pain, yeah. no gain. <laughs> um, but it's actually when we when we talk about um, chronic pain, it's actually um, it's a very unhelpful guidance. We know that we need to we need to listen to our bodies when we live with pain. Um, a lot of people who live with pain, and I mentioned this in, um, in the beginning of my book in terms of my own experience of having a sciatica, was an attempt to push through the pain um, and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And inevitably what that leads to is a flare-up of the pain. Um, and then maybe a period of, of quite a few days where you're forced to rest, and you're forced to um, engage in very little activity. And then, typically, what happens is once people begin to feel a little bit better, they they force themselves through again, and and it's no pain, no gain. I will force myself through. I will get through this, and again, then the same thing happens. They experience another flare up. So, in in chronic pain. Um, terms we call that um, boom or bust so it's literally all or nothing and it's a very unhelpful way to live with pain but it's the way that people live that do live with pain very very commonly
0: so another topic which i mentioned earlier that it's really uh it's close to my heart it's mindfulness meditation mindfulness and meditation as well so what are the benefits and how do we learn to practice mindfulness meditation
1: nicola
2: well, in terms of the benefits, um, this could be a very long podcast or <laughs> yes, multiple true. benefits. But,
1: <laughs> so true. but
2: in terms of some of the things that we've talked about, we know that people who engage in mindfulness meditation that they um, that they manage their pain better. Their pain has less impact on their lives. Um, mindfulness meditation. Um, helps us manage stress. Regular practice helps us manage stress. It helps our mood. It also helps us be more compassionate. And as I said before, what I find clinically is that people who live with pain tend to be very lacking in self-compassion. So if we can use mindfulness uh, as a way of helping people become more self-compassionate, I think that can only be a good thing. But um, there are multiple benefits, even in terms of cognitive benefits, in terms of being able to concentrate better. So multiple benefits associated with mindfulness meditation.
0: Yes, and I practice yoga and mindful movement and Mm -hmm. meditations. I know how powerful it is, those practices. So true. I'm so glad you included that there in your book. And another practice I notice in your book is affirmations. Talk to me for a moment about them. Okay, so
2: affirmations are, um, are statements that we can repeat to ourselves that are positive and that i think it's really really important that we whenever we think about affirmations they have to be at least a little bit believable so when i when i think about this i think about um a girl that i lived with in university who felt that she was so unattractive she wouldn't could never look in the mirror. She had no mirrors. So if I was if I were to say to that girl, I want you to look in this mirror and say that I am beautiful, immediately her mind would go to, this is absolute rubbish, um, I'm ugly. So so I think when we think about affirmations, we have to we have to believe in them a little bit. But I suppose what we're doing by repeating affirmations is we're reprogramming our subconscious mind. Um, and we all have beliefs. Um, about ourselves, about the world, about other people. And a lot of those beliefs that we have aren't helpful for us. They're very limiting for us, but we hold on to them. So how about reprogramming our mind with much more helpful, less limiting beliefs? And I think that one of the ways that we can do that is through affirmations.
0: I have read a lot about it and have practiced myself, some of them. I love the way you say that because uh, the idea of making them somewhat realistic because we don't want it to kind of create a whole new belief system that was never there before or has no ground in anything. So I love that suggestion that it has to be somewhat believable or real, right? Somewhat. That's a great topic, though. We're almost at the end and I have the ending questions for you. But the idea of this negative self-talk, they, it's called also the inner critic, I wonder why that it's so common. That has stopped. Like for myself, it has stopped. I don't hear those thoughts anymore. Maybe they're here, but I don't give them attention. Mm-hmm. So I wonder why do so many of us, especially women, give so much attention to negative self-talk? Mm-hmm. I, I think part of it is a cultural
2: thing um, in, terms of, in terms of women as well. But I think, that, I think the problem is we're on autopilot and we're not aware. So, we don't. So, when it's really interesting to hear you say that you don't have them anymore, and then you stopped and you said, Well, maybe I I do, but I don't pay attention. And I actually think that you do get them, but you don't give them attention. And I suspect that that's probably um, partly due to your mindfulness practice. And that's the beauty of mindfulness. So, I think in order to change something, we have to first become aware of it. Um, And I think a lot of us have these negative thoughts this really harsh internal critic but we're not even aware so it's constantly chattering away in the background but we're not even aware we're listening but we're not even aware that we can take a step back from that we can become an observer of our mind we are not our thoughts and that I think that's really really powerful if we can learn that we are not our thoughts we learn to observe our thoughts. And that's, I think, what mindfulness teaches us. It teaches us to step back and notice
0: and become aware. When you say, and of course, yeah, it resonates, we are not our thoughts. And then most people around me, when I have this conversation, which I kind of avoid around my family, (laughs) I have mostly here, is that the question about who are we then, if we are not our thoughts, all these uh, suggestions that we hear all the time, who are we mm-hmm.
2: I, I, I it 's kind of leading me back to that spiritual aspect i think I think maybe it's about it 's about our higher self, and then all of the conditioning that has come in through all of the things that we 've experienced and all the difficulties all of us have experienced that leads to the development of these internal critics, but we still have a higher self, a part of us that can sit and observe and notice. Um, and if we can get in tune with that higher self, that I, think that I think that that's what can really, really help us.
0: It's interesting. We have so many names. Some people, they call it the source, the universe, God, and I call it life itself, <laughs> just doing what it does. Yes, yeah, so, so true. Nicole, thank you so much for being open to these conversations. To these questions that I usually ask. So we are most at the end. I do have a few more questions for you. The ending questions. Would you like to add anything else or read a passage in your book?
2: Y- yes, I could read a passage in, in my book if yeah. that's okay.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Please.
2: A closer look at how the mind works. Imagine you're a movie director. Your job is to watch hours of footage and to decide what to leave in the movie what makes sense, what adds to the story. As the editor, you will leave out a lot of footage. You will leave out the scenes that don't fit in with the story. Just like the editor of a movie, our minds edit the stories of our lives. They decide what scenes to include, what makes sense to the storyline and what to cut out. Our minds try to make a coherent story. If your story is, I am useless, I cannot do anything since I developed this pain, it is possible that you will become fused with the refrain and really take it on board if this happens you're likely to feel low and depressed and you might shy away from trying to do things that might improve your situation this can result in your life feeling increasingly smaller
0: i love the way you write too it's very profound very spiritual actually but you don't actually mention that a lot. (laughs) The spirituality, you don't have to because it's all over your book.
2: (laughs) I, I take that as a very big compliment. Thank you.
0: So my last question is, how do you define success these days, Nicola?
2: I think success is figuring out what's important to you and having those important things in your life. You know, for some people it's It's having a happy family, and I think then if you can manage to have a happy family most of the time, that's success. But I think it's about contentment with the way things are, and not constantly striving. And being content with how things are right here, right now, rather than constantly striving to have, you know, the next car or um, a better job or have your kids go to college or. You know, always forward thinking, being content with where you are ha- where you are right here, right now.
1: Yes.
0: Um, wow. How many yes I can say to that too. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today?
2: Um, I guess the hardest lesson was um kind of coming back to that inner critic um and trying to I suppose it was difficult for me. I, I've always been quite shy, a very child, shy child. And it's been quite difficult for me and quite challenging to push myself out of my comfort zone and to put a lot of myself in my book. Um, and that felt quite vulnerable to me. But I recognize that 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 was me moving towards my values. Um, and that gave me the encouragement to continue and to do that um, in the hope that I did it with, I suppose, a heart, a good heart. And a, and a wish to alleviate some of the suffering that, that, I, that I see on a daily basis at my work.
0: Yes, you did that. <laughs> and you are that, actually. It's interesting how that energetic resonance that comes through, it could be felt by reading the words, by even looking at the cover of your book. I guess I'm very sensitive to energies and everything. So it just came, the message, yeah, about the beauty behind vulnerability. There's so much power in that, true power, right? Embracing what um, we are here to do. And why not just open and, and, and live this life the way it's calling us to live, so thank you for being a reference for all of us, women and men, all of us. So my last question is, what are three things you wish everyone to experience before they lose the body, before they die? Oh, that's a good question. What were the three things? Um, joy, joy,
2: excitement, yeah. <laughs> and love. Yeah.
0: Aliveness, yeah. It, it really makes us feel alive, all these three components for sure. Thank you so much, Nicola, for your wisdom, for your presence here today and in the healing world ah, and in this universe or this that we call life. Thank you so much for being you too, being authentic. And thank you so much for having me on. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services and future projects?
2: Okay. So um, my book is available to buy online. Um, And again, it's called Master Your Chronic Pain, A Practical Guide. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook as The Psychology Coach, which is the underscore psychology underscore coach. Um, So that's
0: where you can find me. Wonderful. I'll have the link of your website on your podcast profile too. Thank you so much again. And we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye for
1: now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Nicola Sherlock and her work, please visit Benny and Kearney.com.